bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, March 5th, 2013. I begin this week's podcast with an update from Washington, D.C., where last week's implementation of sequester-driven mandatory budget cuts took center stage. I also have news related to tax reform efforts, as well as some highlights from remarks made by Comptroller of the Currency Thomas Curry about how public welfare investments have supported tax credit projects in distressed areas. In this week's historic tax credit section, I'll discuss federal legislation introduced last week to extend to owner-occupied historic homes the existing federal historic tax credit, which currently only applies to commercial and certain residential rental property. Then, I'll share a state-level update from Georgia, where a bill has been introduced to expand the state's historical rehabilitation tax credit. In our low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll discuss a report about the low-income housing tax credit a report that calls for balancing the number of housing tax credit developments located in what it dubs high-opportunity communities with the number of housing tax credit developments located in underdeveloped communities. In our renewable energy discussion, I'll talk about the bipartisan policy center's recently released recommendations related to renewable energy production tax credits. And finally, in our New Markets Tax Credit section, I'll examine the CDFI Fund's first-ever year-in-review report And I'll also share another state-level update, this time from Missouri, where legislation has been introduced to reauthorize the Missouri State New Markets Tax Credit. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, last week, as I'm sure we all know, sequestration took effect. These $85 billion in across-the-board spending cuts for fiscal year 2013 are estimated to translate into about 5% of non-defense discretionary spending. Now, Congress could still pass legislation to alter and mitigate sequestration even after the cuts are triggered, but that said, lawmakers still continue to disagree over whether or not to include revenue raisers in such a package to replace the cuts. Now, the next major budget deadline beyond the sequester is March 27th, just a few weeks away. That's the expiration of the continuing resolution. In fact, the estimate of a 5% reduction in fiscal year 2013 spending is based on assumptions regarding what levels of spending are yet to be approved for the balance of the fiscal year. Thus, the March 27th deadline is actually the next key date where you might see some altering of the actual impact of the sequester. At a minimum, the dollar amount and the impact of the sequester will have to be assessed again after extension of the continuing resolution and after funding is approved for the balance of fiscal year 2013. That said, in the meantime, the effects of sequestration will be wide-ranging. The timing of the implementation of these wide-ranging impacts will vary across various government programs. In many situations, in many areas, the actual implementation of the cuts are scheduled to begin April 1st, 
after the continuing resolution expires and presumably there's an extension of the federal government appropriations. But looking at certain programs, a particular interest to our listeners, we start with the cash grant program for energy tax credits. This is the Section 1603 cash grant in lieu of tax credit program. And in short, it appears that the haircut on funding of grants will be 8.7%. That applied to applications that are issued a Section 1603 award letter on or after March 1st, this carrying through September 30th of 2013. And if you have any questions about the impact of this sequester on your cash grant, I'd encourage you to contact one of my partners, Tony Grapponi in our Boston, Massachusetts office, or Stephen Tracy here in San Francisco. As you look across affordable housing programs, I note that the affordable housing program itself will see a cut of roughly $10 million from an assumed budget amount of $198 million. Furthermore, on tenant-based rental assistance, Right now, there's a target sequestration cut of $938 million. And on project-based rental assistance, that number is nearly $500 million. The National Least Housing Association has released some good information as to the possible ways in which HUD will deal with Section 8 shortfalls. Now, what they do report is that for project-based Section 8, that HUD will likely short-fund HAP renewals. In other words, one-year renewals may be funded for less than 12 months. This would be done with the expectation that Congress would make up the shortfall in a subsequent year as part of any remaining action on fiscal year 2013 spending, as I've mentioned earlier. Now, efforts to offset housing assistance payments with certain residual receipts accounts would certainly likely continue. I'd encourage you to visit the National Lease Housing Association's website for more information about the potential short funding of Section 8 payments. The IRS also released information about payments that are due. These are payments where there's a direct subsidy being made by the federal government in lieu of tax credits, payments related to Build America bonds, qualified school construction bonds, qualified zone academy bonds, new clean renewable energy bonds, qualified energy conservation bonds, all of these we'll see a reduction of 8.7% of the amount budgeted for such payments. This is according to the IRS and information that they released publicly yesterday. I do think it's important to note that for those of our clients and prospective clients, that to the extent that you're invested in a program that is entitled to certain tax credits as opposed to cash payments, your ability to claim those tax credits is not affected by sequestration. So the energy investment tax credit isn't impacted by sequestration, nor is the production tax credit, nor are new market tax credits, nor are low-income housing tax credits, and historic tax credits aren't affected either. This is simply, not simply, but significantly, it is a cash payment limitation that's kicking in as part of the sequester. I think it's also important to look at other upcoming key dates. First of all, the last week, the White House again confirmed that the President's fiscal year 2014 budget, that's the budget for next fiscal year, which was due the first Monday of February, is still delayed. Now, this President's budget for fiscal year 2014 will need to address the ongoing impact 
of the 10-year sequester, since this, the sequester is not just a fiscal year 2013 matter. Now, no official date has been announced for release of the President's fiscal year 2014 budget. However, we are expecting it to be released by the end of March. There's also some other key de- deadlines. By April 15th, the House and the Senate are supposed to pass budget resolutions, so that'll be their plan for fiscal year 2014 spending. And also I note that the debt ceiling suspension ends on or about May 19th. So the key deadlines upcoming are going to be the March 27th continuing resolution deadline and then the debt ceiling deadline on or about May 19th. And then, of course, assuming the continuing resolution deadline of March 27th is extended and or the government is funded through September 30th of fiscal year 2013, then the next key deadline will be October 1st, 2013, for funding for fiscal year 2014. These deadlines are important because oftentimes key decisions get made up to just up until that deadline or right after that deadline, subject to short-term extensions. Now let's turn to tax reform. The House Ways and Means Committee continues to push for comprehensive tax reform. Last week, I reported on my blog that House Speaker John Boehner is holding the bill title H.R. 1 for a comprehensive tax bill. Now this gesture of holding back the number H.R. 1 is meant to signify the importance tax reform holds for House Republicans. Also, last week, the Ways and Means Committee announced a new email address for stakeholders, advocacy groups, and the public to share information, facts, and data with the committee's 11 tax reform working groups. That email address is tax.reform at mail.house.gov. Regular listeners may recall that the working groups were announced last month by Chairman Dave Camp and Ranking Member Sander Levin. The committee last week announced that to ensure that comments are widely available and accessible, the comments that are received will be posted on the Ways and Means website. Public comments will be accepted through Monday, April 15, 2013, tax day. Those comments will be included in the final Joint Committee on Taxation report, which will be delivered to the Ways and Means Committee on May 6th. The process for submitting comments can be found on the committee website, at waysandmeans.house.gov. Also, I note that Congressman Camp may release a draft this week of Subchapter S, Pass-Through Partnership, and Related Issues work paper. So if it does come out this week, look for some comments in next week's podcast on what the impact of tax reform might have in the areas of using Subchapter S corporations, partnerships, and other pass-through vehicles. Now let's turn to public welfare investments. Last week, we heard from Comptroller of the Currency, Thomas Curry, about how public welfare investments have supported tax credit projects in distressed areas. Curry made the remarks on Wednesday of last week at the National Association of Affordable Housing Lenders 2013 Washington, D.C. Summit. As many listeners may know, National banks may make investments in community and economic development entities and projects that promote the public welfare. This is an exception to the National Banking Act, which in general prohibits banks and thrifts from investing in or owning real estate. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency's Public Welfare Investment Authority enables banks to invest in projects that provide housing, services, or jobs. 
In his speech, Curry said that public welfare investment has been critical to the success of the new markets tax credit, low-income housing tax credit, renewable energy tax credit, and historic tax credit programs. He specifically mentioned the jobs created by banks' investments in new market tax credit projects and said that banks hold the lion's share of new market tax credit investments. Additionally, he noted that a significant portion of public welfare investments are directed to affordable housing. It's estimated that Public Welfare Investment Authority directly or indirectly finances more than half of all low-income housing tax credit properties. Curry cited several developments in his remarks that use new market tax credits and those that use low-income housing tax credits to revitalize areas that have suffered from disinvestment. He described public welfare investments as stable and profitable and said that despite the economic downturn, public welfare investments have grown steadily. Last year, banks invested $9.6 billion in public welfare investments, and by the end of 2012, the cumulative total investments were $68 billion. Curry wrapped up his remarks by asking the audience for suggestions on how Public Welfare Investment Authority could be improved. He asked attendees to provide suggestions on ways to increase its effectiveness as a tool to spur housing and economic development. It's great to hear that the OCC is interested in making public welfare investments more effective, and I'll keep you updated on any changes to the authority that might be beneficial to the tax credit community. In the meantime, I would encourage you to take Comptroller Curry up on his invitation and send your suggestions to the OCC. And if you have suggestions as to how public welfare investments could assist new market tax credit or low-income housing tax credit projects, I invite you to consider joining either the New Market Tax Credit or Low-Income Housing Tax Credit working groups. These groups meet regularly to discuss tax credit-related issues, and they submit comments to the IRS and Treasury on issues of concern to members. Participating in the working groups is a great way to share your thoughts and work with other industry participants to get your voice heard. So please contact me at cpas at novico.com if you're interested in joining either group. You can also find information about the groups on our website at www.novaco.com. In addition to these two groups, New Market Tax Credit and Long-Term Tax Credit Working Groups, there's also our Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group, and you might be interested in joining that as well in terms of trying to expand the opportunities for banks investing in renewable energy tax credits. If you're interested in seeing a copy of the Comptroller's speech, simply go to our website under the Community Reinvestment Act, and you'll find a copy. In historic tax credit news, Congressman Mike Turner last week introduced the Historic Homeownership Revitalization Act of 2013. The bill number, H.R. 877. The bill would create a tax credit of up to $60,000 for qualified rehabilitations of historic homes. It would extend to owner-occupied historic homes the existing federal historic credit, which currently only applies to commercial property and certain residential rental property. To qualify for the tax credit, the taxpayer would need to use the home as his or her principal residence. And then, then a developer that rehabilitates and sells an historic home could also qualify for the credit as long as the buyer uses the home as their principal residence. To be eligible, a taxpayer would be required to make qualified rehab expenditures within a two-year period that exceed the greater of $5,000 of the taxpayer's basis in the property. Expenditures to enlarge properties would not qualify under the credit, similar to the existing program. Co-sponsors of the bill include Democratic Representative Earl Blumenauer from the Portland, Oregon area. 
Now, Representative Turner originally introduced a bill like this back in 2011, and unfortunately that bill died in committee. You can find the text of H.R. 877 online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Now, turning to the state of Georgia, a bill was introduced last month in Georgia's legislature to expand the state's historic rehabilitation tax credit. The bill, HB 308, maintains a 25% tax credit for qualified rehabilitation expenditures, but increases the per-project cap from $300,000 to $5 million for rehabilitations completed after July 1, 2013. The bill would also allow the Department of Natural Resources to designate two projects a year that would not be subject to the cap. It would allow earned credits to be split into four equal installments that can be assigned to partners and investors, and would require notification be submitted to the Department of Revenue within 30 days of the credit allocation. The bill specifies that the original recipient of the credit would be liable for the tax if the property is sold within three years. Similarly, the original recipient would be liable for the tax if the credits are disallowed, reduced, adjusted, or recaptured. The introduced bill was referred to the State House Committee on Ways and Means on February 13th, and you can read a copy of the bill at www.historictaxcredits.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, last month, the Poverty and Race Research Action Council released a study entitled Creating Balance in the Locations of Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Developments, the Role of Qualified Allocation Plans. The report says that while low-income housing tax credits have developed more than 2.4 million housing units since the program's inception in 1986, more of an effort should be made to create balance through state allocations of the tax credits. More specifically, the report emphasizes the importance of balancing the number of housing tax credit developments located in what it dubs high-opportunity communities with the number of housing tax credit developments located in underdeveloped communities. The report provides three points to argue or support its claim. First, the report says that low housing tax credits are most beneficial when they accomplish things that choice-based housing vouchers can't. As such, the study says that housing tax credit developments should provide housing in high-opportunity neighborhoods where fewer housing units can be reached within voucher payment standards. Secondly, the report argues that because long housing tax credits and state governments are subject to fair housing law, housing tax credits are obligated to further fair housing. I should point out that this concept has proven to be problematic in practice. And on a related note, in the April issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits, Nixon Peabody attorney Harry Kelly will discuss fair housing law and how it relates to the low-income housing tax credit. Now, returning to the report, the authors also noted that there will soon be a need for recapitalization of older housing tax credit properties and that this threatens to worsen the current balance of where properties are located. Housing finance agencies from Georgia, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania were interviewed for the report. These states were chosen in part because they prioritized developments in high-opportunity locations in their qualified allocation plans. More detailed information about neighborhood revitalization in qualified allocation plans for states such as Colorado, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Indiana, and Texas can be found in the report. The report's available online at www.prrac.org. In renewable energy tax credit news, on February 27th, the Bipartisan Policy Center released a report, America's Energy Resurgence, Sustaining Success, Confronting Challenges. 
What we'll focus on for this week's podcast are the report's recommendations dealing with renewable energy production tax credits. The report recommends encouraging renewable energy production and consumption through extended tax incentives, among other things. It also recommends that Congress review the full range of energy tax expenditures and develop a reasonable phase-out plan for those tax expenditures that constitute subsidies for mature fuels and technologies. Regarding the renewable energy production tax credit specifically, the report suggests Congress should extend the production tax credits initially at its current level and plan a complete phase-out by the end of 2016. The report states that the reasoning behind this four-year phase-out plan is that for newer expenditures, a sudden change could be needlessly disruptive and potentially harmful to industries, companies, and their employees, and investors who have all made plans and investments under current policy. The report contends that a complete phase-out by 2016 would align the incentive program with actual reductions in wind project costs and increases in energy revenues. The report suggests that the value of the tax credit should decline over time on a predetermined schedule, thereby increasing exposure to market forces. The report suggests that a comprehensive tax reform provides a better framework than targeting individual industries or technologies to accomplish this result. The authors also suggest that the same criteria for federal support should apply to all energy technologies. They argue that this would give all energy technologies equal opportunity to compete for an appropriate share of public resources. In new market tax credit news, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, as it's more commonly known, last week released its first ever year in review. The publication illustrates the CDFI Fund's work in 2012. It also states the agency's strategic priorities for 2013. The report highlights several programs, including the New Market Tax Credit Program. Here's what the CDFI Fund shared about the New Market Tax Credit Program. Over 31,000 jobs have been created from funds allocated through the New Market Tax Credit Program. The program has also spurred an estimated 52,000 or more than 52,000 construction jobs. Further, $5.5 billion in loans and investments in low-income communities were made possible, and 70% of those loans and investments were in severely distressed communities. That $5.5 billion was made up of 1,278 qualified low-income community investments. Now, I note this is the activity for 2012. Furthermore, 578 businesses were financed, as were 2,967 housing units. Nearly 19 million square feet of commercial real estate were developed, and that translates into more than 320 football fields of real estate. The report also includes cumulative program impacts and information about the latest funding round. The CDFI Fund released the report at the annual CDFI Fund's Community Development Advisory Board meeting. The report advises the CDFI Fund's director on the organization's priorities and policies. This year, the board included six new private sector representatives appointed by President Obama. Now, you can find a copy of the report online at the New Market Tax Credit Resource Center at www.newmarketscredits.com. Now, turning to the state of Missouri, Missouri State Rep Scott Rupp has produced a bill that would reauthorize the Missouri State New Market Tax Credit, which reached its cap in 2010 and is set to expire 
in 2013. Senate Bill 112 would extend the state's new market tax credit for six years after it is enacted. The current credit totals 39% of qualified investments by a CDE as adjusted by state statute and is claimed over a seven-year period. Now, the bill would prohibit CDEs from making certain distributions to equity holders and making cash payments on long-term debt securities until certain requirements are met by the investment. As of last week, two scheduled hearings for the bill in the Senate Jobs, Economic Development, and Local Government Committee had been canceled, unfortunately, due to inclement weather. I'll report any progress on the bill in future podcasts. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik & Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik & Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www dot novaco dot com.